Hello and welcome to the Jesuit Border Podcast. This podcast explores the humanitarian response along the U.S.-Mexico border from a Catholic perspective. My name is Louis Hotop. Today, we're releasing a special bonus episode of our interview with Bishop Mark Seitz from El Paso. Bishop Seitz was in the news recently because he helped to host President Biden during his visit to El Paso. Notably, the bishop handed the president a holy card of the Sacred Heart of Jesus with a prayer on the back written by a migrant child saying, Lord, I ask you to take me from here soon. Help me with my case. I want to be with my mommy and my sister soon. Amen. It's encouraging that Bishop Seitz continues to be such a strong advocate for migrants, finding ways to make even a presidential visit an opportunity to encounter those who are so often forgotten. We are very grateful to Bishop Seitz for generously agreeing to be interviewed, and we are happy to share the full content of that interview with you today. We are thrilled to welcome on this episode today Bishop Mark Seitz of the Diocese of El Paso, Texas. A native of Milwaukee, Wisconsin, he was ordained a priest in Dallas in 1980. He was made an auxiliary bishop in 2010 and then appointed as a bishop of El Paso in 2013, which of course is located on the border across from Ciudad Juarez. Great to have you with us on the episode today, Bishop Seitz. Good to be with you guys. Thank you for the invitation. I was thinking maybe as a first question here, uh, you know, Father Louie and I are both a couple of uh, non-border locals who live on the border. And so for yourself, growing up in Wisconsin and then getting ordained in Texas, in, uh, in North Texas, in Dallas, what was it like? Uh, what, what was it that brought you down to the border? And what's it like being, uh, being a non-native servant there? Well, it's a gift of God is what it is, but it's nothing I would have ever dreamed of or planned uh, growing up in Wisconsin, when I thought about my future life, and even if even if that were, were as a priest, I imagined myself serving in the parishes like the ones I grew up with in the uh, country west of Milwaukee. But um, uh, when I was graduating from high school, I looked around for a college or maybe a seminary, and uh, I came upon the University of Dallas, a small Catholic college that seemed to kind of fit my needs. And then I discovered the seminary there, uh, which I visited, and um, I, I just felt like that's what I need to do. I need to figure this out. I need to go to the seminary. And um, it, I enjoyed my, my time there as an independent student. Uh, at the time, you could just go without even having a diocese. It, it would be unheard of today. But um, uh, at, at that time, uh, I was able to do that. And I kind of came to the end of my third year, and the rector uh, said, um, yeah, you were able to do this to start up, but you really need to have a diocese before you continue. It's time to fish or cut bait. So I thought, uh, you know, what am, what am I supposed to do? What can I do? Uh, and I certainly considered going back to my home state. Uh, but I realized I had 
in that those years really fallen in love with the Church of Dallas. It was young and growing, the growing in the sense that Catholics were moving in from the south, south of the border, uh, also from the north and east of our country, and uh, they were converging on Dallas and looking for a place to make their home. And very often they would look to the church for more, more than just a place to touch ghoul on Sunday, you know. They were looking for a place that would be a focus for their new life. You know, Bishop, just thinking about your own life and your own experience as a minister and and what you're known for now, one of the one of the biggest things you're known for is your advocacy for for immigrants and for those who are on the margins. And I'm just wondering if you, as you look back in your history, as you look back in your experience, especially in those early days as a bishop, is there a time where, where you felt like that really clicked for you? You know, the, the social teaching of the church or your experience with people, where it really came together and you saw that as, as something that would, would push you forward in your, in your own ministry? Well, in a certain sense, I have to say that my involvement in the issues of social justice it is not something new that just came when I was made a bishop. Uh, my primary involvement in those uh, areas really focused on the life of the unborn, that whole issue, because when I was in the seminary in my first year, that Roe versus Wade decision came down, and I was shocked. Uh, I couldn't believe that our country would somehow find a right to take the life of an unborn child in his or her mother's womb. Uh, it, it startled me, and uh, I knew that I had to do what I could speak for the, uh, the rights of every person from the time that they were conceived and, uh, until death. Uh, but with a special focus in that area. Uh, so I, I was involved in the pro-life movement, uh, not only preaching, but uh, sometimes marching, sometimes standing outside uh, abortion centers and just trying to be a prayerful presence uh, to help women to reconsider their situation. Uh, but I noticed, actually, from time to time, I go back over homilies I gave uh, years gone by, and uh, I, I'm surprised and pleased in a certain way to see that I didn't limit my uh, uh, focus on, on that. I, 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 I kind of got it from that situation that we in the church have to stand for those who are vulnerable. We have to stand for the dignity of of the people that whose dignity isn't being recognized, respected, served. That that's fundamental gospel stuff. And and so, uh, thanks be to God, I wasn't, uh, I didn't uh, allow myself to be to be thrown into one political ideology or another. Uh, I'll speak for the unborn, but not for the immigrant, not for the person that's a victim of racial prejudice or something like that. From a Catholic perspective, that just doesn't make sense. Uh, when, for us, uh, we have 
uh, of beautiful consistency uh, that admittedly we don't always express as well as we should, but, but we've got to start there. And, uh, and so those issues have always been important to me. Now I find myself at the border. Never would have guessed it for, it's such a, a blessing to be here and to see the life of this community and the way that a, a border can be. Uh, and it's um, a place that I like to say, you can't live the faith in the abstract, right? And so these issues are in front of us every day. And uh, how could we be Christian without responding in some way? Here I am. That's right. The, 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 Issues are right in front of you when you're when you're in the border in a border community in terms of issues of uh, of immigration and justice and care for the vulnerable, uh, even racial prejudices that emerge in those contexts. Uh, one of the one of the things that's marked your time as bishop that I found so striking has been the celebration of these border masses uh, that help to illustrate about how you know a, a border might be a man-made barrier between two countries or separating peoples, but there's something important about our faith that, that unites us, and there's something particularly meaningful about the, celebrate, the celebration of a sacrament like Mass that can speak to the unity of the body of Christ amid the divisions that we build among the people of God. So I wonder if you could comment a little bit on maybe some of the origin of that, that border mass and what that experience has been like in the years that you've uh, celebrated it. First of all, a word about borders. And I've learned a lot about this since I've been in El Paso. Uh, I, I, like so many of us, considered borders a place of demarcation between nations, a place of confrontation, perhaps, uh, a place where armies would uh, be facing one another and so on. You know, I think a lot of us uh, Americans consider the border almost like a demilitarized zone, which really isn't, of course, right? Uh, where you have um, fences and barbed wire and mines or, or the Berlin Wall or something like that. But many borders, I, I would dare say most borders are not like that. Uh, they are places that, yes, they demarcate uh, where one country ends and another begins. But they're not places that have to be places of confrontation. They can be places of a rich encounter, uh, a, a place of a rich dynamism where two countries and cultures and even languages might meet. And um, where there there is obviously some... Uh, control about the flow, but more importantly, it's a place that allows some kind of flow. It's like a cell in the body, right, that uh, presents a, a wall that contains the cell but allows uh, things to go out and things to come in. Uh, that's the way the our border is. It's, it's, it's a beautiful place of encounter uh, binational community. And so when we celebrate a, an annual mass to, to mark that and, and to say, even in the midst of these continually more uh, uh, re restrictive barriers that we're building, we are still 
one community across a border. Uh, we are still the people of God. We're still children of God. More unites us than what separates us. And um, we've been fortunate in recent years often to be able to actually celebrate that Mass right on the border. That's where the altar goes. Um, now, a lot of people might say, remembering their geography, wait a minute, there's a river there. Hmm. Uh, well, there used to be a river there. In your part of South Texas, there's a river. But unfortunately, when the water arrives to the El Paso area, coming from the Rockies and through New Mexico, and uh, also having water drawn off by Mexico itself in an international agreement, there's not much left. And you, you know, it's about ankle deep most of the year. So um, we can actually set up a little platform and uh, our my brother Bishop from Juarez comes, a uh, brother from Las Cruces in New Mexico comes, and uh, we gather with the faithful on both sides of the river and, and celebrate our unity. The, um, you know, I think that's such a beautiful image, that, that, that sharing of our faith, that sharing of the body of Christ, the, the communal worship and thanksgiving, the Eucharist being shared at the border, and and that's been our experience too. That that the border, you know, there are families on both sides of the border. It's a shared culture, a shared identity, and yet we have some of these more artificial entities that that are being imposed upon that culture and that identity, such as the the law of the United States currently with with Title Forty Two enacted, with with the different. Uh, different systems that are in place that prevent people from seeking refuge in the U.S. And we, we give a lot of our own perspective just on what we're seeing across the border because of, because of people not being permitted to seek asylum in the ways that, that they once were. So I'm wondering if you could just kind of describe that reality right now in Juarez from your own perspective. Uh, what, what are people seeing? What, it, what is it like um, as people are coming to the border are there camps in place? Are there people in shelters? Uh, what, 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 what are you seeing there? Well, we're seeing growing numbers of, of people coming to our border right now. Uh, it is uh, hitting levels that we, we haven't witnessed, at least in a long time. Uh, and uh, the shelters in Juarez are full uh, and I do pray that everybody can find a place to lay their head and receive a, a decent meal and, and the like. Um, but it's, those resources are really being strained right now. And the same is true on the El Paso side of the border. Um, we've been averaging a, around 1,000 people every day crossing the border here, and uh, it has really uh, uh, challenged us because we we don't want them to be left on the streets. Women, children, you know, pregnant mothers, uh, their their fathers, after having uh, gone through a perilous journey, fleeing from their homes. Uh, 
we don't believe that our country um, should continue their suffering. You know that uh, these people are are seeking asylum, and there is there are they're following the law actually that allows a person to make an asylum claim. Uh, so we're we're working very hard to stand up resources in the church to to receive them and care for them as they continue their journey. Yeah, talking about lar- you know large numbers of people coming to the border and um, you know the strain on resources and things like that and the challenges put forward for the migrant journey based on you know politics and political policies. One thing I, th- I feel like the church can help to offer in the midst of that reality and situation is a healthier understanding of migration. I might call it a, a theology of migration as we think about the, 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 import, the, the, the importance and the fact of movement in our life, the spiritual journey that we're all on, but even the human journey that we're on that often involves physical migration. And so what, you know, what are your thoughts when you think about kind of a, a theology of migration and how that could kind of shed light and maybe maybe open up our hearts and minds a little bit more when we when we read stories in the news about migration that paint it very much in socio-political terms what can a theology of migration offer to to help us well a theology of migration and of borders if you will is something i've come to see as a natural you know it's this is a place where some of our best reflection on the gospel can happen and where we can see uh, the deeper meaning of, of Jesus' teaching uh, and, you know, sp- spell it out, live it out. Uh, the uh, migration, of course, is the way that uh, the people of God understood their, uh, their relationship with him over centuries. They go back to the people of Israel. And, and their flight from Egypt, right? 40 years in the desert. I think we're all familiar with that. Uh, it, it's deeply formed the people of Israel, that time in the desert, that journey where they um, developed their relationship with God, often failed to be faithful to that relationship, where God called them back again, saved them again and again from the various trials they faced and brought them to a land, to a new place to live, uh, where there would be security, a land of milk and honey, right? Um, So it's not like we're the beginning of this theological reflection. You know, what we've come to see is that this, uh, a journey is one of the best ways we can speak of our life and its and its goal, you know, the the kingdom of God. Uh, we can see how Jesus' uh, whole ministry was encapsulated, or the narrative was formed, especially in the Gospel of Luke, of Jesus' journey to Jerusalem, where his mission would be fulfilled. Um, so this is not new stuff, but Pope Francis has really assisted us to, re- to come back to these roots, if you will, and to recognize in people on the move, people who are living out the 
the call of God in a certain way and have so much to teach us because of their experience. I think that's such a, a reminder of, you know, that that cornerstone of our identity as, as a Christian people, that we are a pilgrim church, you know, we're a church on the journey. And, and that's, a, that's not just some of us, that's all of us, you know, and we're all on this journey together. And, and that, collective, that collective engagement with one another, you know, as we help one another on our journey is so essential to that identity. And so what I, I, you know, just a question that comes to mind, just hearing your own reflection is, uh, you know, who, who have you met? Is, is, there, is there a story that you have of somebody on their own journey, on their own pilgrim journey that you've been able to accompany or see that you'd like to hold up just, for, just to provide some, some even more depth to, to uh, how people understand the border or how people understand migrants? Is there a story of someone that comes to mind? Well, it's not one story, but so many, actually, you know. But I'll, I'll share one that is happening right now. Uh, we're receiving at this moment primarily asylum seekers from Venezuela. They're also coming from Nicaragua and Cuba. They are people we don't, from nations we don't have diplomatic relations with right now and uh, Mexico will not receive them back so we're receiving them in great numbers and and many of them who are coming unlike those who have come before them primarily from Central America or Mexico uh, don't have sponsors in this country so uh, they provide challenges uh, so several weeks ago we received a family among the 50 that came to our shelter here at the Diocese of El Paso uh, this family from Caracas in Venezuela, uh, young mother and father in their early 30s, uh, two young children, four and two. The mother's grandmother, who's 70, and uh, the, um, the, or the wife's mother, uh, grandmother, who's 70, and uh, the the wife is also expecting a baby. And uh, when they arrived after this grueling 3,000-mile journey, passing through this Im imposing and terribly dangerous jungle called the Darien Gap, so, it's so rugged and difficult that they weren't able to build the Pan American Highway through that piece of... Uh, I believe it's Colombia and uh, Panama, about 70 miles long. They had gone on foot through there uh, with the, that situation. They arrived to us exhausted, tired, um, you know, just um, feet with blisters and, and all of this. And the mother then starts feeling pains and she realizes she's going into labor. So she... Um, uh, was brought to the hospital, had the baby by C-section, and was told then, you can't travel for at least two weeks. So we had to find a place for this family to stay uh, an unusually long period of time. Normally people are just a night with us or two. And uh, we were able to let them use uh, 
uh, little house that we had built for retired priests. We have we have eight of them here, and uh, then uh, when the baby uh, was about a week old, the baby started to develop an infection. It turned into pneumonia. As a, uh, as a matter of fact, right now as we speak, I just learned that last night the baby was um, is in intensive care and was uh, put on a um, ventilator. So um, I've I've gotten to know this family. <laughs> you know, um, uh, they're living here on at the kind of the compound where our diocese has its offices, and um, they're an amazing family of faith, such faith. They tell me how they prayed every step of the way of their journey, how they know that they couldn't possibly have made that journey without God's help. And now their their vigil continues as they pray for this beautiful newborn baby who's named Adonai Kaleb. Hmm. And um, so they're they're teaching me all the time with with their perseverance, their faith, uh, the um, the charity and joy with which they live their life. Um, they they were forced to live to leave Nicaragua. Uh, the husband worked for the government actually, and just couldn't do it anymore as that government becomes more and more a dictatorship, um, and. Uh, uh, they they took the risk and here they are um and um for us it's been a blessing to have them with us hearing stories of migrants journeys and the way that they can touch and affect you speaks a lot to that that power of in encounter or encuentro as i know you've written about before something that's so central i think too to the pontificate of pope francis is that importance and value of encounter for which there's really no 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 adequate substitute right and and how much that that can bring conversion of hearts and minds and otherwise so i wonder if you could uh, elaborate a little bit on uh your own thoughts on 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 the importance of encounter and especially what that means in the in the context of immigration and your ministry uh in a border community well of course uh Encounter is at the very heart of our uh, Christian life, of our spiritual life. Uh, we want to encounter Jesus. We want to know him. We want to share his life. Uh, we want to receive his grace and help so that we can find a way through this perilous journey that we call life. And um, what Jesus has revealed to us is that uh, an encounter with him also implies an encounter with his brothers and sisters, with our fellow human beings. Uh, that it, it's not a one-on-one, -on -one, me and Jesus. Just I'm just going to pull away from the world and, and okay, Lord, save me. Uh, I, I'm not going to think about all those others along the way. Uh, it, it's you and me, Lord, you know. <laughs> I wouldn't recommend you try that kind of pray with prayer with Jesus. <laughs> he he intends to save us as a people and we will be saved and we will come to know God by knowing one another 
Um, we are made in the image and likeness of God. As, as baptized Christians, we present the face of Jesus Christ and we discover him in, in one another. Uh, we're called uh, to, that, to that life uh, of union with, with the Holy Trinity, Father, Son, and Spirit, uh, which he has opened up to uh, the participation of, of all his people. So uh, we're not going to be saved alone. We're not going to even know God alone. Uh, and, and so we have in, an op uh, in this situation an opportunity to know those who clearly reflect the face of Christ even more than others because of the way that they have shared in his suffering, because of the way they've come to trust him when they couldn't count on anything or anyone else, uh, because of their closeness to Jesus, they will be our teachers. Um, and uh, there is a blessing uh, to encounter them. Uh, I don't consider this work with migrants, uh, oh, no, you're putting yourself out and you're serving these people and things like That's not really the point. I'm hoping to come closer to, to Christ. And I'm hoping to help God's people here in the Church of El Paso and the church as a whole to, to come to, to encounter Christ by think, our encounter. And I think that's such a... In some way, there you know any anybody can do that. That's what we're all called to as Christians. But in a special way, the priest and the bishop and the ministers of the church are called to really, really help people and guide people to that encounter or encourage them in that encounter. And I think a, a, a maybe a selfish question that I have. This is our our now second year of priesthood. Um, but a selfish question I have is. Uh, what do you see as the role of the priest going forward in the Christian community? It's it's a role that has gone undergone uh, uh, many changes uh, in the in the past few decades, and it's an identity that that is is a very powerful one. But also, you know, there are some parts of that identity that kind of need to be cast aside, ever ancient, ever new, you know, uh, put aside some of those parts of that identity and then other parts of the identity that need to be raised up. So a selfish question, uh, you know, how do you see the priesthood going forward, especially in this kind of context where, where we're encouraging the encounter, the authentic encounter with Christ and upholding stories like the most vulnerable stories that we, that we see every day? Well, thank you for the question. Uh, I think it begins with a recognition that we cannot see ourselves as the ones with all of the answers, uh, as the ones that are solely uh, and responsible for the work of the church, right? Um, that when you consider what I, what we just said about the faith being something that doesn't happen you know be uh, on an individual basis uh, 
although there is a certain obvious personal encounter that we that we seek it draws us into this broader uh, dynamism of of the forming of the people of god and and so we don't come in uh, with with all the answers and and to control but we come to serve you know and and we hear those words still in the ordination uh, right and and so much of the teaching that we receive but but so often it kind of morphs into um well really the people of the parish ought to serve me mm-hmm. <laughs> you know and, and that's not the point um we do have a responsibility to lead and as as servant leaders we we have the responsibility to uh, bring the people of God together in this great work of the church. Uh, we have we shouldn't shy away from our responsibility to reflect the present leadership uh, of of Christ in the midst of the community, because not because of our worthiness, but because of our call. Uh, that is what we have. Uh, been called to, so uh, we we walk with people, and as the Pope has said, sometimes we walk ahead, and sometimes we walk behind to take care to take care of any that are going, you know, uh, and uh, I, I just hope that uh, we'll be able to see ourselves in that way. Of course, for that kind of a ministry, we have to have dynamic and living spiritual lives we have to have our times of of prayer uh, and we need to uh, make sure that we are always reflecting on how uh, on jesus call in our life and uh, what a given moment is given for we can't become just uh, in the image of a ceo uh, some kind of uh, business leader uh, we're we're people of faith. Servant leadership is just so important to the dynamic of the priesthood, and I think to the bishop too. And you think about that image of, uh, I mean, Jesus obviously is our model, and so then the importance of faith to nourish us and and keep us strong. I certainly see that in just our work in ministry here on the border. How important. Uh, a healthy prayer and spiritual life is for ministry when you're working in, in situations that are really can be sources of great despair and depression when you meet people who are really struggling with life and going through such difficult situations. You know, a lot of times you ask, like, how, you know, how, what is it like ministering in this situation daily? And I, I, honestly, I couldn't do it without uh, a life of prayer, without turning to Jesus in prayer. And so one uh, a question for you, I would say, would be, you know, what what does your own life of prayer look like? What is what is it that you turn to? How, how do you find hope and solace amidst the despair of our world? What sustains you in your ministry as bishop uh, in the diocese? First of all, let me just say I, I very much agree with you. I, I honestly don't know how people do this work without a lively faith. Uh, I know some people do, and I just think, I'm awed by them. You know, it's a work of, of grace. Uh, and I do think that God is still working through them, right? But for, for most of us, we human beings, we need to 
make more explicit what is kind of implicit and, and hidden maybe for others who are uh, stronger, better people than we are. Uh, I do see a lot of people in this work become uh, just officious and um, uh, jaded, uh, very negative in their thinking and so on. And this is true not only in this ministry, but so many ministries. Uh, the, a healthy spiritual life is, uh, is something that, you know, continues to call us to realize we're part of something bigger. We're not the ones that have to save the world, uh, but we are trying to unite ourselves with one who does have the grace and strength, even in the midst of the, the passion, you know, to, to continue to uh, guide us towards something that is over the horizon sometimes. So uh, for me, I know that I've just got to take those moments, even through the day with, to me, the liturgy of the hours is uh, tremendous help that just, in a certain way, demands that I uh, pause from time to time uh, and and pray. Uh, at night, I, I have my time in the morning, <laughs> you know. And and this, I have to say, the the Eucharist and the other sacraments I, I celebrate are constant sources of of strength to me. Uh, I feel so privileged to be able to prepare homilies because that's a beautiful moment to reflect on the way that God is is at work in teaching us through the through the scriptures um, and um, and I apply it to my own life uh, I don't think preaching could be effective unless I did you know I I in my own in my own prayer and you know in this work when I'm feeling the most exhausted I often think of uh, you know, like my grandmother who worked on a farm and uh, she used to have this dress where she collected eggs all up and down the dress to, <laughs> and I just think about how hard she worked, you know, and how yeah. hard, how much she was dedicated to her family and tirelessly, tirelessly working uh, to sustain her family. And she was a great woman of faith too, a simple faith. But, uh, and, and it, it reminds me that within my prayer and within my own life, I'm being accompanied by saints and being accompanied by these examples throughout my life, these people that, that continue to guide me uh, in my own ministry. And then I feel a little courage to keep going, you know. Yeah. <laughs> and I, and I, I wonder, you know, are there, is there an example like that? I'm sure you have many, but is there an example like that for you of, of someone that you look to or you think of that just helps you keep going or encourages you in, in your own ministry? Many. Uh, but just to name a few real quickly, San Oscar Romero, uh, he just recently canonized uh, the bishop from Archbishop from San Salvador, El Salvador. Uh, wow, his courage and his insight into the gospel as he uh, dealt with with a time in which the government was so repressive, and he knew they would probably eventually take his life. Uh, but um, he found such courage. San Pedro de Jesus Maldonado, one that many people haven't heard of, especially in our country, he is the one of the 25 Mexican martyrs from the Crucio, uh, from the Crucero uh, War. Um, 
and um, he was just trying to be a pastor. Uh, we feel close to him here in El Paso because he came to El Paso to be ordained. Mm. And at, at another occasion, he was beaten, put before a mock firing squad, and then deported from Mexico to the United States, to El Paso. Wow. You know, recuperated in El Paso. You know, he served uh, for 19 years after his ordination and uh, eventually was um, arrested and, and, and martyred. Um, of, of course, you know, we all have so, so many, uh, Mother Teresa, St. John Paul, uh, so many that show us how to live this faith of ours. What a blessing. Not sure if you identify much as a football fan, uh, but growing up in Wisconsin and then uh, entering the diocese in Dallas, there's a fundamental question that I have to ask you, at least for my dad's sake, if not for other listeners, Packers or Cowboys? Well, I think that's one thing I want to ask the Lord about sometime, you know, (laughs) Wisconsin and, uh, you know, uh, deeply uh, a committed Packer fan would, <laughs> would ever end up in in the home of the Cowboys. <laughs> a great mystery of life. <laughs> That's right. Another one of those. I, I remember one time when I was in the seminary, my brother had actually come down to the University of Dallas also. He and I had the opportunity to go to a game uh, where the Packers were playing the Cowboys. Uh, Texas Stadium was right next to the university. And... Um, we're there rooting for the for the Packers as they play the Cowboys. The Packers were one and five at that time, and the Cowboys were five and one. And um, so we're cheering, and all the people around us are sneering. Uh, <laughs> and and uh, we or he, my brother ordered a banner, a Packer banner. The the salesman, uh, this crazy Ray, if anybody remembers him, uh, takes and he says, "You want this." He throws it on the ground and stomps on it, you know, and then hands it to my brother. Um, but um, anyway, uh, it's been fun, that rivalry. And I actually came to the point where I could root for the Cowboys as long as they weren't playing the Packers. <laughs> there you go. I mean, if that isn't a sign of unity among the division and the people of God, I don't know what is. That's really <laughs> such an essential image. There will be an icon of that one day, you know. <laughs> Well, Bishop Seitz, thank you so much for for joining us today on the Jesuit Border Podcast. Thank you for your ministry, for your witness to to true and authentic gospel values. Thank you for being for being one of those people that we look to as an example uh, to 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 continue in this ministry and to continue that 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 ministry of encounter, really, of accompanying our our brothers and sisters who are in who are in difficult situations. So uh, yeah, just, you, you know, we're, we're so touched that you took the time to, to be with us today. It's certainly a pleasure to be with you. I'm, I'm so edified by your work too. So glad that, that you're here in your early years of priesthood uh, and calling uh, and bringing light to this important situation that is such an opportunity for us to renew our faith, all of us. 